This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial, go to Squarespace.com slash Slate. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Jane Eyre, the new 2011 version directed by Carrie Fukunaga and starring Mia Wasikowska. It's a lot of syllables so far. And, uh, and Michael Fassbender. <laughs> Joining me here in the studio is Lizzie Skernick. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Dana. Do you want to introduce yourself as far as what you do, blogger, writer, critic extraordinaire? Done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll mention my book because my publisher likes it. I'm the author of Shelf Discovery, a memoir about teen reading. Which, which is actually kind of perfect for Totally. For it doesn't have Jane Eyre, but it, it could. Well, Jane Eyre is essentially the, 18, the 1810 version of same, right? Or no, everybody's going to write in that I got completely the wrong date. When was Jane Eyre written? 18? I had 1810 in my brain, too. Wait, I happen to have my yes, um, very – it's missing its entire back, my very old paperback here. Oh, 1847. So we saw this together yesterday. We agreed that we would not exchange a word about it till we got into the studio. But overall, good impression, bad impression? I loved it. I actually, it, right up until the end, I really, I enjoyed the entire thing. I had no no intention of loving it, but I just loved it. I sort of went in slightly prejudiced against it because I just don't feel like I need a fresh Jane Eyre at mm. the moment. I'm, I'm totally fine with William Hurt and Charlotte Gainsbourg for the next <laughs> decade, <laughs> which as I remember, I should re-see it before I write on this, this, this movie tomorrow. But as I remember, I really liked that version. I thought the casting was fantastic. I don't think there's yet been a great film made of Jane Eyre, and it's maybe hard to film a great book. This is sort of an ongoing you know, discussion and whether a great work of literature can be made into a great movie. But there have been a lot of serviceable, you know, fun, kind of romantic, gothic adaptations. And, and I thought Charlotte Gainsbourg was one of the best Jane Eyres I've ever seen. I can't speak to that because I've never seen that version. I think the last one I saw, what was the version that came out in like 1939? What version would that? It's probably not. Well, I mean, I only know of two other versions. I think it's been filmed many times. And I think there have been like BBC kind of adaptations oh, yeah. too. But, I'm, but, I, but there's the Orson Welles, Joan Fontaine. That's the last one. And, uh, and the very young Elizabeth Taylor as Helen Burns, the girl in the, in oh. Lowood Institution at the beginning. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Which I also don't remember as a great movie. I mean, definitely the casting of Orson Welles as Rochester didn't work at all. It was one of those kind of grotesque stunt casting Orson Welles moments. Right. Right. I agree. Well, I think what was interesting, though, about this version is that it was so gothic. I mean, right from the beginning, because I had forgotten. I know we just crammed on our literary Jane Eyre's. What a friendly, funny book that is. And that this really, you know, that scene right at the beginning where she's whacked on the head with the book and, you know, her, I guess he's her first cousin actually, is looking for her with a knife. You know, the, there's so much abuse, but quick abuse in these first passages that you, you completely forget that the book itself actually elides that. I mean, it doesn't refer to pain at all. Yeah, the movie opens on a very grim note. It seems like the unrelenting message of the first 15 minutes or so when she's a child, when instead of being played by Mia Wasikowska, she's played by a child actress. Right. The message is, you know, this this period, 1810 or whatever it was, the early 1800s was a time of child abuse as a kind of just a ritual practice. And penitence. I kept thinking the words penitent actually at the beginning because right at the front, you know, she's lying on those dead rocks on the heath, you know, or on the moors really. Oh, yeah. We should talk about the time frame actually because yeah. there's some funny time cutting. We do start out with Mia Wasikowska grown up, right? And she's running away in tears on this gothic heath from something we know not what, which it turns out later on is she's running away from the truth that she learned about Rochester, right? right? Um, but but that's all sort of takes place out of time. And then we go back to her childhood and kind of see a setup of how screw she's been since birth. Right. So in case people don't know the story of Jane Eyre, so basically we're going to sort of be mingling stuff from the book and the movie here, but essentially 
she's an orphan, right, who starts out in the care of her very cold, rich aunt, played by Sally Hawkins, mm-hmm. interesting, a big actress for a very small part. And this woman treats her horribly and eventually... Aunt sends, by marriage. By marriage, uh, right. Yeah. So the guy who actually loved her, the uncle, is gone, is right. dead. And uh, and then she gets sent to the Lowood Institution, which yeah. in the book is a really significant portion of the book and one of my favorite parts of the book. It, it gets pretty um, curtailed in the movie. But the Lowood Institution is you know a very grim orphanage where she befriends another young girl named Helen Burns, the one that Liz Taylor played in, in the old movie. And that also gets a light to something very small here. I love the character of Helen Burns and that whole part in the book, and it seems very crucial to the book. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it would have to make for an eight-hour-long movie probably to, to include all of this stuff. What did you think of the Lowood stuff at the beginning? Well, I, I loved it because in the way that the movie is spare and very witty— it's also spare and very witty. You know, I love the part where they make her stand on the chair. And what does he say? He says, this is your pedestal of infamy. Right. <laughs> and that's the only thing we hear from that instructor, you know. And the only thing we see from the mistress of the house is her pulling off her fine dress and having her step out of it. So I loved that. I just felt like it was a very particular interpretation. I mean, I felt like the entirety of this movie was a very particular spare, spare interpretation of the book. You know, the only thing we see from uh, – what's her friend's name again? I can't remember Helen any Burns. names today. Oh, yeah, Helen Burns. The only thing we see is she gives her a role when she's on her pedestal of infamy and then she dies. So that's pretty much it. And in a way, I liked that though because it's one of the few moments – of sentiment. That scene and the end are practically the only sentimental moments in the film and it's almost as if the filmmaker – I mean we can get to this a little bit later but since we only see Jane Eyre from the outside. Whereas a, in the book she's a first-person narrator, total, right? Total – an endlessly first-person narrator. I mean she's, she's really sort of full and, and this Jane we only see from the point of view of Rochester, of everybody else and from her answers to things which are very clever. But because he's taken that out, it's almost as if he has to stay very spare or she's going to be sentimental whether or not he wants her to be. You know, well, the thing, the thing that makes Jane Eyre hard to adapt, I think, is that the entire story of Jane Eyre rests on the fact that everyone who meets Jane Eyre, everyone good who meets Jane Eyre <laughs> loves Jane Eyre, right? Yeah. So it would be really easy for her to be a goody two-shoes. But in the book, she's not at all a goody two-shoes. No. But Helen Burns, right? I mean, she's in all these horrible institutions where there's no love and no thinking and no laughter. And she's actually this very thoughtful person who always wants to engage in these debates about, you know, theology and freedom with everyone she meets. And whether it's Helen Burns at the institution or Rochester later on, or even St. John Sinjin, you know, the the preacher who decides that he wants to marry her at one point, everybody kind of elevates her as this exceptional being. And in the book, that makes sense because we hear her language, which is exceptional, and we, we sort of engage with her ourselves. In the movie, it's very easy for her to become this sort of Cipher. Yeah, Cipher. and sort of a wimpy, passive victim. I think this this movie did a pretty good job of avoiding that. I have to say I think the Charlotte Gainsbourg one did a better job. Well, here she's – you know, it did sort of emphasize the idea of her being small and plain. I mean I think she says that. That's one of the lines that's included. But isn't that a problem for you too a little bit? I mean this is the classic Hollywood problem. But Mia mm-hmm. Wasikowska is small, but she's certainly not plain. She's not plain, although I do think – this the hairstyle so I do think she looks plain enough actually in this role the way it's played and certainly compared to the sort of you know bird of paradise way all the other girls are dressed you know the wealthier girls and even the sisters even Sinjin's sisters are better curled and shiny haired so I do think in comparison she looks sort of burlappy and plain enough <laughs> you know and even on her wedding day she's so I mean I think this is the way Mia I can never say her last name Wasikowski mm. plays her she's 
she's so flat-chested and buttoned up that that actually works for her being small and plain. But I do think the part that's difficult is our not getting – you know, I do think the director must have struggled. Of course, in this spare gothic version, he doesn't want to do a voiceover because then all of a sudden it's like, you know, some movie version of The Turn of the Screw. But then how are we supposed to understand Jane Eyre as this brave character except for the two or three clever ways she resists Rochester? That's why it's really hard for me to tell with a, with a movie like this how much I'm bringing to it. I really enjoyed this movie and I actually at many moments thought, oh, that was, you know, that, that scene was really well played. That character mm-hmm. was really well sketched. But I have no idea how much of it I was bringing from the book. And I think if I was coming to it cold, it might seem a little bit cipher-like, the, the big romance. But let's let's talk her into her next stage of life. Okay. So so she uh, runs away from the Lowood Institution, mm-hmm. makes her way through the heath, and ends up cold and wet randomly at the door of this local pastor, I guess. Curate, I think. That's yeah, curate. That was the word I was looking for. Um, I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> that's an excellent word. I was actually thinking of the French curé, and then like, there's not a word in no, English, yeah. but there is. Yeah, curate. So so he's played by Jamie Bell. His name's Sinjin, and he's yeah. he's actually quite a good character, I think, well, really well developed in, in the movie. Sure. Um, they keep her for a while, and then they find her work as a governess at this forbidding manor called Thornfield, run by Rochester, who you know becomes the big love interest in the second half of the movie. No, she's found work. I only remember this just because the movie is so confusing. Sinjin finds her that free work as the teacher for oh, the yeah, girls in the village. Oh, yeah, there's a very, very brief and not, I don't think, very well-developed moment where she is a teacher, and then we don't know exactly why she leaves. She's found the job with Rochester. That's her placement from the school. So remember that back scene where all the girls are saying, goodbye to her at long right which is the other way we understood she's very loved because all the younger girls love her and are saying goodbye to her then from there she's placed with rochester and then when she runs from rochester she winds up on sinjin's door and he finds uh her that low placement his sisters go off to their placement and then he finds her that placement and he says i haven't wanted to tell you because it's it's so very low you'll just be teaching village girls and she's like anything just get me the hell away from rochester and so then she winds up at that village school alone but then it's sinjin at that school who tells her she's inherited all the money and then that's when she goes and lives with sinjin and then when he says will you marry me she you know spoiler she she goes off and goes back to rochester and i do think we should say i've now looped incredibly but that the heath itself something particular about this for those used to these english adaptations which i loved is that i almost wouldn't call it the heath it's like the badlands i mean it's this enormous barren landscape. I actually wonder where they found it, you know, whether it's in England or whether it's in Wales or somewhere. I wondered that too. Did you see the last Harry Potter movie? Because there's, no. a, there's a lot of a crazy, crazy landscape that doesn't look English at all. It like looks New a Zealand. lot like this. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it must be because it's not like I've traveled New England, ex- England extensively, but I've never seen anything that looks like that there. And I felt like that was the first signal to us from the director that this was going to be a hugely barren Arctic movie. Yeah, well, that should be something to to alert (laughs) listeners to is that it's not – this is not a merchant ivory feeling movie. It's not kind of crammed with soundtrack and costume and, you know, lush period detail and things like that. I mean, the period detail all seems accurate, but – it seems like there's an attempt to empty that out and give it a more airy feeling. Oh, totally. It's very – even the light is sort of spectral and washed out, you know, which I thought was so interesting because I wrote on my notes also not Merchant Ivory, like underlined three times because those movies are so 
warm. They're all about the um, you know overwhelming plenitude of the, dress, the past, of right. the past, and and this movie is really about its starkness. I mean, it, it literally begins with her hiding behind that white curtain, trying to read a book, and then this guy slamming her on the head, so blood runs from her. It's not your mother's nineteenth <laughs> century. <laughs> Well, we, we have to get to the romance, which is the heart of the movie, and the relationship between Rochester and Jane. But first, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace.com. So Squarespace is a place that you can create a website to display your Flickr photos, create a blog, stream your tweets and your RSS feeds, design color choice, you know, customize the whole thing. It offers a lot more options than free hosting sites like Blogspot, which basically require you to get your web designer friend to come help you make it actually mm-hmm. look good. And you can try it out today for free through a special offer with the podcast. On their site, they show you some of the kinds of websites that you can build through Squarespace, and they also have an iPhone app, which makes it very easy to update your info on the go. Squarespace.com slash slate. Go there to sign up for a free trial, no credit card needed, and thank you, Squarespace, for your support. All right, so here we are halfway through our discussion of Jane Eyre, and we haven't talked about the Rochester-Jane Eyre romantic (laughs) connection yet, which is, I mean, especially in the movie, is the heart of the thing, right? Right. I mean, the book may be about free will and friendship and all Mm -hmm. kinds of other things, but, I mean, every movie adaptation of Jane Eyre has basically been a gothic romance about this this gloomy, impenetrable guy, Rochester, and how she wins him over. So. One key thing, what did you think of the casting and the chemistry with Michael Fassbender and and, uh, Mia? I loved the casting. I loved the chemistry. And what was so interesting to me is everybody's idea of Rochester. If you say Rochester, you always get the idea of this, you know, that's in the dictionary, gloomy, impenetrable. But this Rochester actually is just sort of dissolute and seeking connection always, you know, come talk to me, you know, amuse me, you know, so vibrant and active. And even though Jane is scared of him, you don't get this sense of this person that you couldn't reach ever, even before he declares his love. And I actually loved that about him because he's not terribly broody, actually. No. You're right. I mean, William Hurt, definition <laughs> of brooding, right? And Orson Welles, too. Yeah. He's cranky. I mean, he's always, you know, there's that part where he goes off and shoots his gun and stuff, but he's quite present. You know, if, if you were his governess, you really would have a hard time not tumbling into his bed all the time. Well, also because of the three Rochesters we're talking about, Michael Fassbender is by far the best looking, right? Yeah, he's super, super hot. And also, Have you seen him in other things? No. Because see, the minute that I heard Michael Fassbender was in this, I kind of snapped to attention. Like, <laughs> I hope, I just hope we get to see a lot of him. Well, you didn't see Fish Tank, which you should really, really see. It's one of the best movies of last year and it really disappeared. It's this English kind of kitchen sink realist kind of movie where he plays this I don't know how to describe. I don't want to give too too much away about his character, whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, but he becomes the object of obsession of this young 15-year-old girl. And um, he's so sexy in that movie. It's unbelievable. He's so good and menacing and sort of you're not sure what to think of him, but you're incredibly drawn to him, and which is exactly how this young girl character thinks of him. And he was also in Inglorious Bastards in this small but hilarious role as the uh, the British spy who was just like something out of an old Alec Guinness movie or something. You didn't see that either? No, I'm like the worst. Never have me for a podcast again because I'm like the worst movie podcast companion. No, no, it's no. not that you have to come with knowledge. I just wanted to know if you had any Fassbender No, fires. I had none. And that I actually sort of loved that about him because I was absolutely new to him but not new to Rochester. And so he sort of looks like a young Kevin Klein, except more with a with a darker, like not as sweet, you know, a little more more edgy and menacing. To me, I kept thinking, was he Joaquin Phoenix after, you know, three weeks at a spa or something? (laughs) But I just um, I mean, it's funny. You would think who they would have cast for Rochester. Who's who's the guy that um, plays the James Bond now? 
Daniel Craig? Daniel Craig. You know, he's sort of your more typical idea of an English Rochester, you know, truly menacing and brooding. You know, this Rochester just truly seems damaged. And it's and it's very unclear if he's a liar or not. You know, when we get to the point where he... Oh, well, we have to spoil the big, okay. the big spoiler big in Jane Eyre. Spoiler. Which, if you've read, you already know. But it's the mad woman in the attic, right? Yes. It's the fact that Rochester, who slowly falls in love with his governess Jane and proposes to her, and they're at the altar about to get married, then it's revealed that all these strange scrapings and <laughs> that, howlings that have been heard around the house which are, are not terrifying. in fact which which are kind of ghostly yeah. are not in fact a servant having a bad dream as he's been trying to pass it off but um, but his former wife who has gone crazy and he can't divorce her and so she's locked up in an attic and she's well, he caged up there. Well he doesn't want to put her in a mental institution because those are horrible and he says that to Mia. But what I thought was interesting again though in this movie it's not just ghostly rattles. Remember the two things we see of her is that she sets his bed on fire she tries to kill him. And also that she um, wounds her brother quite deeply. You know, she she cuts his neck almost to the bone. So she's not just – I mean she's truly the mad woman in the attic. The movie doesn't just sort of act like she's an inconvenience. You know, have – by the way, have you read Wide Sargasso Sea? No. OK. So that, it's a retelling of the story, right? It's, well, it's about their early – marriage um, in Jamaica and it's a wonderful the Jean Reese novel yeah and it's a wonderful dreamy brooding book and what I loved about this movie I have no idea if the director read it is that was her you know she's you know sort of like a really insane creole you know seductive who's now also become mad and and wide sargasso sea is about the process of this fairly normal girl becoming that way and i loved it that she was that kind of a mad woman you know she was quite jamaica was really a part of this uh movie in a way that it's i mean it is a part of the novel but it's not a part of the novel the way it became a character in this movie right um, if we have we addressed the gothic and that the book isn't gothic, do we talk? No, about that let's yet? talk about that. Maybe we'll maybe we'll wrap up with that. And, oh, I wanted to mention Judy Dench too because I think she's oh, great. Yeah, I loved Judy Dench's funny surprise walk on. I mean, because it was a screening, it's that kind of thing where you want to burst into applause, like when Alec Guinness sometimes <laughs> comes onto the screen and you didn't know he was there. But you know, but I couldn't. But she was quite wonderful as the housekeeper. Yeah, yes. she was fantastic. I, I, all the small roles were great. I mean, basically, I don't I don't think that this movie breaks any new cinematic ground. But there's nothing wrong with it as a Jane Eyre adaptation. No, no. Um, and I also think it's it, it's interesting because I kept also thinking of um, what was that Nicole Kidman movie that was the based on the turn of the screw? Oh, the others. I the love others. that movie. See, I loved. I loved. That's that. my favorite Nicole Kidman role. I think. Oh, really? Back, um, back when she really was an exciting actress to watch. You know? Yeah, Nicole Kidman and the others to me was sort of an example of. Gothic going slightly over the top, you know, Gothic leaning on Gothic in order to be scary. Whereas what was interesting about this movie is how it added this minor Gothic to to a book that's not Gothic at all. So we have that early scene where she's locked in the Red Room, which I guess was the first mention of Red Room ever before Stephen King, you know, and that terrible stuff comes out of the fire, you know, and we have the violent wailing from the madwoman. And we also just have her being caned, you know, which is awful. And then Jane being muttered in her head. But all the gothic occurs on such a minor scale that it's actually much scarier. You would expect an entirely different book had you never read Jane Eyre and you only saw this movie. You would you would expect something more like Dura's The Lover or something. And I think that's actually the one flaw in the ending because this particular movie, in a way, can't have a happy ending. You know, it's not a happy movie. Everything in, about it is about misery, degradation, you know, self, uh, 
keeping oneself unsatisfied. And then all of a sudden when she gets Rochester at the end, you're like, shouldn't Rochester have died? Do you want to just summarize the end? Oh, sure. At the end, Jane, after rejecting St. John, comes back to Rochester and the house is burned down. And Judy Dench is there, strangely enough. You know, she's wandering through for a while when we don't really know whether or not there's going to be anyone there, whether she's going to be able to find Rochester again. Judy Dench comes upon her and then she asks uh, Judy Dench, where is he? At which point I thought she was going to point him towards the grave, you know. And then, of course, he's just sitting there kind of skinny, you know, and blind, but fine with the dog. Not disfigured as he is in the other movie versions because it's Michael Fassbender. He's just – his eyes look a little bit loopy but basically it's it's him. And so, yeah, it is a happy ending within the very um, gloomy confines of, of this world. Right. right? She's, she's going to be with him after all. There's a redemption to their love. He's kind of blind and disfigured. And at the end of the book, there's almost a sense that she's his nursemaid or something. That's what I was about to say. That's what makes more sense in, in the context really of either both works is that after he's been forced to take care of his wife, Life, you know, in this horrible, compromised way, she would be forced to take care of So it's like Ethan Frome. It's sort of like yes. you, you get what you asked for and then it's horrible. <laughs> exactly. But the movie doesn't really leave you with that impression. No, no, no. The movie leaves you with the impression of, thank God she didn't take Sinjin up on that offer to go to India. You know, like, like it's much more sort of a Jane Eyre after sticking to her guns the entire time is redeemed, you know, which is a nice story. But it doesn't seem like it's really the story of the aesthetics of this movie. Here's a last question. Would you send friends to this movie if they're not Jane Eyre fans and and English literature nuts? Would you just send somebody because it's a good movie? Yeah, I would. I was attentive the entire time. I felt like it told the story well without it having to be a story that was familiar to anyone. Until the end, I thought it was just sort of gripping, which is strange since it's a story that is familiar to everybody. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Well, thanks a lot for coming to see this movie with me. And please come see another one soon. Oh, yeah. Any minute. (laughs) Our producer is Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.